Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram here from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our podcast. On this episode, we have software consultant Ron Lichty on to talk about all things software management. Ron has a treasure trove of experience helping teams accelerate and amplify their software practices. We look at the history of waterfall-style projects and their transition to agile. We talk about his time as a product manager at Apple and his work with Charles Schwab at the time they launched their electronic trading platform. Ron articulates his views on the different types of developers out there and how to motivate them. We finish up with a couple areas Ron is excited about, blockchain and virtual reality. Hope you enjoy this one. Thanks. Hey, everyone. You've got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. Fizan joins us as well. And our guest today is Ron Lichty, software consultant and author of Managing the Unmanageable Rules, Tools, and Insights for Managing Software People and Teams. Thanks for joining us today, Ron. Hey, you're welcome. It's great to talk to you. Awesome. Would love to hear a little about your background. So you've been working in tech for a while. You, I, looking a little bit at your history, you started as a programmer, you wrote compiler code early on, some early word processing software, but would love to hear about your background. Yeah, so that's exactly right. I began in tech as a programmer, and I spent about seven years as a programmer in a two-person consulting company where we did write compiler code, where I wrote compiler code generators. I wrote uh, early word processing software. I wrote multimedia applications. I wrote embedded microcontroller device code and got a couple of patents, actually, on hotel locking systems and on smart card-based postage meters. And I loved programming. I uh, thought I had the best job in the whole world. And But I really was curious about one other role in tech, and that was managing, managing mm-hmm. programmers. And I got an offer, and in a two-person company, you don't manage programmers. And I got an <laughs> offer from Apple Computer to come and oddly, not come manage programmers, but come create and manage a product management group for development tools. So that was that was how I transitioned from programming to management. So how did that kind of work? Because that's a different kind of role than necessarily managing programmers. I imagine managing you know, product managers would be a little different. Uh, definitely. And it was sort of the dawn of product management and software development. So not a lot of people had a lot of experience in it. So I had, I had been a programmer and I had written two books. I was writing the second book, actually almost finished with it two books on assembly language programming for some of the tools that were used for the Apple II GS, the last of the Apple II line, the Apple II that looked like a Mac, like a color Macintosh before Macintosh had color. So this is, this is a long time ago. This is 1988. <laughs> but I had also been a writer, so I would obviously been an author, but I had been a journalist before becoming a programmer. I had been a graphic designer before becoming a programmer. And I'd done some public speaking and... Apple said, you've done a bunch of the things that constitute product management, and you know more about our tools than uh, about this particular set of tools than anybody else does. We think that you're the right person to come create a group to do product management around our development tools for, for the Apple IIGS. 
And so I did that. I was a product manager until I got a team hired. I managed that team, Apple reorgs about every six months. And uh, six months later, I found myself managing development tools for the Macintosh. And six months after that, I found myself managing object-oriented tools for the Macintosh. And six months after that, I found myself out of a product management job <laughs> and <laughs> with, with, the, with the directive to go find something else to do inside of Apple or outside if I wanted. Uh, I loved working at Apple and I thought, well, what do I most want to do again? And I thought, I'll go be a programmer again. So I went and got a programming job. And about a month later, they made me a manager. <laughs> and six months later, they reorged again and I went looking for another programming job. And about yep. a month later, they made me a manager. And that third time of being a manager was when I realized I actually liked managing. Mm -hmm. And I guess what made that switch for you? Like what, what changed that third time? The thing that you leave behind when you go from being a programmer to being a manager, the when you're a programmer, you have these moments of absolute, so I did at least, these moments of absolute ecstasy where you know, you're facing down a, some hard challenge that just seemed impossible moments before and suddenly it works. And you jump out, you jump out of your chair with joy. Yep. Uh, and when you become a manager, you don't get that. You don't get that anymore. And the third time, what I realized was that I was, a, I was enabling a whole team of people to get that. My job was creating the environment in which a whole team of people would get those moments of ecstasy. And my job was to keep the, keep the politics out of their groups, the team's life, to keep the politics out of each individual programmer's life, and to give them as much opportunity for joy and ecstasy as I had loved having. And that enablement thing was the thing that really that, that I really realized that I, I did have some people skills after all. And, and I really liked doing that. Yep. And I think in the past you've said, you know, around that kind of 2002 time frame, you had heard something about Scrum. And I think I'm probably going to be paraphrasing here, but it was the kind of practice where developers kind of kind of put their head down for a, a set amount of time and that they don't get interrupted. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna back up three years from that. So I, I went to well, I'm gonna back up a few more years from that. So in '96, I went to Charles Schwab to lead development of the first really interactive tools on Schwab.com. So the first investor tools on Schwab.com. And three years later, in '99, I got to lead the CIO or CI. I'd become a director of engineering. I, I got to lead the CIO's initiative to move all of software development to a single platform. So up until that point, projects could pick any technology they wanted. And they and we had almost every language that existed in our data center and almost every platform. And you can imagine the data center folks tearing their hair out at that. And our CIO had decided we were going to do it. She pulled together architects. They decided we were going to move everything to Java, all of our new development to Java. And I get to lead the initiative to do that. And so I was supporting teams teams and technology and business units across Schwab. And I was supporting a VP who had brought in something called extreme programming. This was in 1999. Extreme programming at a time when if our servers went down at Schwab, we measured downtime in millions of dollars per minute. And I thought extreme programming and, and millions of dollars per minute, that's, that's really crazy. When I went to Apple, I had met Kent Beck, who had created Extreme Programming. Many years later, he created Extreme Programming. He was still just a small talk, just a small talk guy. He was a major small talk guy. Mm -hmm. 
in 88 when I met him and, uh, and I called him in Oregon and we brought him down and he did some extreme programming consulting with us, some, some workshops. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. That really brings together some best practices from software development. But I wasn't yet total fan of Agile until, and you had the date right, 2002, when another colleague at Schwab said, we're starting to do something called Scrum. And I said, well, you know, so this was the first time I'd heard of Scrum. Uh, it had been around for a few years, but I hadn't heard of it. I said, what is it? What makes it unique? What's what's the special sauce here? And he said, and, and as you said, developers get to go heads down for two weeks at a time and not be interrupted. And that just blew my mind. The, the thought of developers not being interrupted for two weeks was just so foreign up until that point, up until the point that Scrum and, and actually XP has some of this in it, but and Agile has some of this in it, but Scrum really focuses on that, create a plan and then work the plan and 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 don't <laughs> don't screw around with it during the during the two <laughs> weeks. Or, you know, however long your sprints are. They can be a week or they can be four if you're doing really technical stuff. Yep. And but the the question I had for him then was, but but the thing that always caused those interrupts was from product management. They were out investigating competitive products. They were out talking to the marketplace. They were out talking to our customers. They were out talking to stakeholders. And they kept bringing in new and changed realizations about what the product needed to be. How do you deal with that? And he said, well, you know, we we actually ship stuff every two weeks. We're, at, we're ready to ship every two weeks. We don't ship it to customers necessarily, and, and most of us don't. But we're ready to ship stuff every two weeks, and we're just ready to see what's the next two weeks worth of stuff. And it can be 180 degrees different from what it was two weeks ago. That's fine with us because we're ready to take on new stuff. So I, that was when I got sold on Agile. Yep. Um, and curious, so at a company like Schwab, which kind of has you know pressures from all kinds of places, but particularly with respect to scale and going to your comment about how they could be losing you know million dollars per minute on downtime, how do they think about moving towards something like Extreme or Scrum? Because that seems like it would be a big jump in kind of uh, software management philosophy. Yeah, I, at the time in '99 that I ran across that I discovered a VP who was doing Extreme programming. Just as language choice had been left up to project teams, similarly process had been left up to individual project teams. We were the follow-on to moving everything to Java in 99 and 2000 was let's move everything to a single process. And we investigated a bunch of processes and ended up focused on RUP, the Rational Unified Process, which had taken in a bunch of, which had taken in every, I mean, it was the sort of the, a Home Depot of, uh, of processes at that point is taking <laughs> everything and you could pick and choose, but it had a framework at least that, that everybody could go with. And so Schwab picked a, a way of working and it was not agile. And I left Schwab in 2002, just as they were making this transition to, um, uh, what many of us referred to as the Schwab, the Schwab unified process. Uh, instead of the rational unified process. And they tried that for a number of years and finally said, you know, we need to switch to Agile. So they've, they made a move to Agile and to Scrum sometime in the last decade. Yep. And you know, I began teaching friends teams Scrum uh, 10 years ago and realized that, that I really liked teaching teams. I'm, I'm really excited about Agile and Scrum as a way of untangling the knots in software development and making software development hum 
And I realized that that this was Agile has so much going for it if it's done well. Yep. And that's a and and that's a that's the challenge these days. So ten years ago, I, when I was started training teams in Agile, I was I was really transforming waterfall teams to Scrum or some other form of Agile. And the last few years, I've been doing a lot of Agile training, and I've been basically transforming Agile teams to do Agile effectively. And you said if it's done well. So that's super interesting. Uh, what do you mean by that? So there's two parts to that. One is that the practices often aren't done well. So let me give you both of them. One is the practices aren't done well. The other is that we're really not understanding what's behind the values and the principles that are behind uh, that are behind Agile or behind Scrum that allow us to adapt it to our culture and our people our products that allow us to make it effective. And it's like um, there are countries that have voting machines that are not democracies. Similarly, doing agile practices don't make us agile. Right. Agile and democracy both come from uh, values and principles. Then to go back to the practices, I very frequently find teams doing stand-ups that are not effective. Um, so, I'd say about 95% of the standups I run into are status meetings, not replanning meetings. And they're intended to be replanning meetings. Uh, if you go look at the, at the uh, definition of the word scrum in rugby, what it means is to restart the game. Okay. <laughs> and the intention of the daily scrum was to restart the game every day. And that's not a status meeting. That is a, what do we do as a team to be effective today? And the three questions were supposed to lead to that, but it ended up with this sort of individual, here's what I'm doing and here's what, and, and, and doing rather than accomplishing as well. Uh, and and it's <laughs> just way less than effective. And small nuances make it wildly more effective. Yep. And I guess what is some, like when you're working with teams that are going through this kind of transitionary period from waterfall to, you know, a more agile type of workflow, what's some of the pushback that you get? What I see is a lot of skepticism at the very beginning. And maybe it's because of my approach. Maybe it's because I've been a product manager and I've been a developer and I've uh, and I've managed testers and I've had project management responsibilities. And I sort of either done or managed everybody on a product team. There's something in Agile for everybody and that you know everyone gets out of it. And ultimately, an, a great Agile team, a great Scrum team, either one uh, is, I mean, if you think about the best product team or the best programming team you've ever been on, that's what Agile's driving toward. And if you think about that best team that you've ever been on, what you get, what, and I ask developers and product managers and programmers and testers this all the time, you know, give me an adjective or two for the best team you've ever been on. And I get words like respect and trust and uh, we had a common goal and everybody had my back. You, you know, it sort of shivers go up and down your spine, you know, thinking about, the, you know, that's the best team I've ever been yep. on. And that's what Agile's driving toward is recreating that that best team. And so we get into we get uh, you know an hour or two into training, and I don't get pushback anymore 
the pushback is in that first hour or two, and it's skepticism, and, and it's not just waterfall to agile, it's agile to agile. There are very few teams these days that don't say we're doing agile. Almost everybody says we're doing mm-hmm. agile, but when you dig into it, you find practices that aren't effective. You find teams that have never been trained together. You find teams that have no common vocabulary. Once one person says stand up and another person says stand up and a third person says stand up, <laughs> they all mean something different. Right. So, uh, ditto with planning or retrospecting or a story refinement or stories, or they typically have not created a common definition of done in the team. They may have been handed one by management, but more typically than not, they have not done one on their team itself. Um, so there, there are just so many ways in which small tweaks and small nuances make a huge difference in effective software development and moving toward that amazing, most amazing team you've ever been on. Yep. Can you give maybe, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be like an in-depth case analysis or anything, but a particular team that comes to mind where, you know, a small tweak to their workflow really changed their overall, you know, performance? So almost, so I teach teams to do, so... You know, estimating is one of the, so I'm going to to go to estimating because it's the thing that drives everyone crazy. Okay. (laughs) Uh, There there is almost no company I've ever been in that that hasn't said, when are you going to be done? It's driven by boards of directors. It's driven by sales. It's driven by marketing. It's driven by the business. It's driven by the CFO. There's there's a million reasons why we need to have some understanding of when it is we're going to ship something. You know, the waterfall mechanism, and I was guilty of this. I took whole teams of developers into dark rooms for days at a time. And we did uh, task work breakdowns to break down projects into features and break features into every possible routine that we would have to write to do this. And we'd put, we'd put hours or days against all those routines and we'd feed the hours and days into an Excel spreadsheet or Microsoft project. And it would add them all up. And so some number of days later, we would all emerge tired and beat up and feeling really awful about it with a schedule that was wrong. It was just almost universally wrong. And the fact that it was right sometimes I think was accidental. And it's just not an effective way to do it. Many people have learned to do planning poker, but typically they're doing planning poker on a sprint by sprint basis. And that does no good for estimating the backlog, estimating when we're going to ship a bunch of stuff, when we're going to ship a quarter's worth of stuff. And it's got the right idea behind it, which is relative sizing. But planning poker actually takes about three times longer than I want to take to do what we can do with relative sizing. So Steve Bachman, 16 years ago, came up with two-pass relative sizing, and he's since written a 99-cent ebook about it on Amazon, and he's written a novel about it that, that's a fun beach read. If it were June, I'd be telling everybody to go out and buy his book, Predictable, to take to the beach with him. It's, it's a fun read. And two-pass relative sizing is a way of taking a whole backlog, three or four months or even six months worth of work, putting it into the short course, putting all of them on three by five cards, all the stories, all the epics, all the features, whatever you got, putting the three by five cards in a smallest amount of time to longest amount of time order, and then putting Fibonacci numbers on them, which then gives your product manager an idea of how big these things are. They have an idea, but there's some, they're wrong part of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we all are, as, as we managers are too, we're not doing the work. And it also allows us to, with some velocity coming out the end, to give us an idea of how much 
how many of those relative sizes we can do. It gives us an idea of how much we're going to have done in a quarter or three or three or four or five months. Where we're going to be on February 15th. Amazingly powerful. Quick question along those lines. So, you know, these days there's whole slew of new technologies. There's uh, platforms like, you know, there's serverless platforms like AWS, Google Cloud, and so forth. When you're estimating with respect to incorporating like a new technology, something that the developers have not worked with before, but maybe there's some pressure from management to use it or from a client to use it. How do you kind of factor that those kind of unknown quantities into your estimation workflow? So if we had to put hours to it or days to it, we would be just absolutely wrong. The magic of relative sizing is we can look at that and we can look at at something we do know or something else we don't know and say, you know, this one's going to take longer than that one. And it's in training, I take my class, my group of people who are in training and say, okay, so we're going to teleport And so I'm in San Francisco today. And if I were working with a team in San Francisco, I'd say, okay, so we're going to, so Berkeley's got one thing that San Francisco doesn't have. It has a view of San Francisco and the Berkeley Hills have a great view of San Francisco. And we're going to teleport up to the top of the Berkeley Hills. And we're going to look across at at the two tallest buildings in San Francisco. I'm going to ask you, tell me how tall those two buildings are. And, you know, the method of getting to the height of two buildings is probably counting the number of windows and then coming up with some kind of guess as to how tall each story is and hoping that the stories are all the same height. And then dealing with the other problem that they didn't build the two tallest buildings on the Berkeley side of San Francisco. They're instead in the middle of San Francisco. So their buildings blocking your view of them to see how many how many windows there are. So you've got to count the windows on some number of other buildings that are in front, which probably have different heights to their stories. And you impute and compute and do a bunch of things. And, and five or 10 minutes later, you come up with a guess. If instead I said, take a look at those two tallest buildings and tell me which one of those is taller, you would immediately know. You'd immediately tell me that one's taller. Right. And, and if I said, what percent taller? You would say, yeah, it's probably about, uh, I'll, go with, I'll go with 12% taller on that one. It's like, great, 12% taller. Now let me give you the height of one of those two buildings. And within a minute, no programmer is, is gonna take more than a minute to tell me what the height of the other building is. And some of them will tell me within seconds, we'll do 112% calculation or 12% off calculation within seconds. And we get a number back. And that's how velocity and uh, relative sizing work is everything's sized relative to each other. We're looking at a new technology and we're scratching our heads and we're not saying, oh, it's going to take n number of days. We're going to say it's bigger than that one. And probably if we're grasping onto onto brand new technologies that we've got to embrace, they're probably pretty big stories. And they get up into the 20, 40, or 100 category of Fibonacci numbers, of modified Fibonacci numbers. You've talked about kind of Brooks' Law in the past, which was popularized in the mythical man month, or the idea that adding manpower to a late software project makes it later. And it's a counterintuitive, uh, in so many other fields, it would be counterintuitive. And I feel like we could do a whole podcast series on this topic, like a year's worth of uh, things around this topic. Can you talk about this idea a little bit? And what is the difference in software versus, you know, other industries where it just doesn't work like that? 
So in thought work, and so I, I won't say that that's not true in, say, electronics hardware engineering or mechanical engineering, but certainly in software engineering where you can't see the parts. Mm-hmm. You've got to look in and, and see the descriptions of the parts. And ideally, the code is a good description, and it's got some comments that are also a good description. But when we hire somebody onto a programming team, they've got to catch up with where we are, with where the team is. And furthermore, the team has to help them catch up. And so it causes, I did a a magic formula with a, so I take on interim VP engineering roles, as well as training teams in Agile and advising business leaders and product leaders and engineering leaders around making their software development home. And I took on an interim VP engineering role and we were trying to figure out what their velocity had been in the previous quarter versus the coming quarter. And so they had they had grown their team in the previous quarter. And so we chatted about it. We decided that we would take a six-week hit on every hire we made. And then we'd also take a hit during the recruiting phase because recruiting pulls a whole bunch of hours out of a whole bunch of people on the team. Mm-hmm. But that person arriving also pulls a whole bunch of hours out of a whole bunch of people on the team. And our velocity we estimated would go down for a period of time. Uh, And I forget what percentage we estimated with, but the velocity will definitely go down for about six weeks while that person comes up to speed. We'll end up getting more velocity six weeks from now, but only after we suffer a loss in velocity for a while. And that's what the word velocity wasn't used relative to programming 45 years ago when Fred Brooks wrote that. Mm One of the true values of rules of thumb, like Brooks' law, is that we can point to it and say, you know, this has been true for forty-five years. Uh, you know, I didn't make that. I didn't make this up. Right, and we'd love to hear if there's any interesting cases you can think of where you've seen these. Because uh, a natural follow-up, of course, is well, if a project's late, what should we do? What are some tweaks that teams can make in late projects to kind of you know get back on track? Besides thinking of adding people. Well, the first of them is let's not be late realizing we're late. And we can do that with relative sizing of our whole backlog and three sprints worth of velocity. And so that's my rule of thumb is I want three sprints worth of velocity for this stable team Mm -hmm. to understand what its velocity is. And I'm going to average their velocity over three sprints. Now we can walk down the backlog and we can draw a line and say, this is where we're going to be in February 15th. February 15th, here we are in at the beginning of October, you know, do we have the right stuff above the line? Uh, we want to ship on February 15th. And if we don't have the, stuff, the right stuff above the line, can we swap stuff? So is there stuff above the line that's not essential and there's stuff below the line that's essential? Can we, can we do that swapping? And often enough, that is enough. We can, we can do that. But other times, you know, we're, we're nowhere close to where we want to be February 15th, now we can bring in a new team or we can bring in new team members now in October and make a difference for that February 15th date. You know, we get down to the last week or two, all we've got is death marches for trying to get work done. And that works for a week or two, but people lose their, that superhuman, (laughs) superhuman mental strength after a week or two of that probably a max of three and doing it any longer than that is totally counterproductive. 
And I guess this is a good segue into the topic of kind of good managers. Something that you've mentioned in the past that I thought was kind of interesting was that you said that good managers create a environment that facilitates self-organizing team. I thought that was a really crisp way to put it. Can you talk about that a little bit and kind of the idea of uh, motivators and demotivators you've talked about before? Yeah, so I, you know, I think there's two parts that you're driving toward. One of them is culture and one of them is motivation. And I'll start with motivation. The thing that was astonishing to me very early in my management career. Well, the first thing that was astonishing to me was that I was reading a Harvard Business Review article. The Harvard Business Review article happened to be either by or about, I I forget, this guy named Hertzberg, who posited that we think we know a lot about motivation, but in fact, we talk in terms of motivators, but in fact, there are things that are demotivators or things that are foundational that you need to deal with first in order to have any motivational impact. So, you know, once you get to, and uh, Dan Dan Pink has done this in his book as well, uh, Drive, there's a baseline of salary beyond which money doesn't make a lot of difference from a motivational standpoint. But until you get to that point, it makes a huge difference. So you've got to have people who feel like they're being paid adequately, being paid satisfactorily, But once you hit that point, that's not the motivator. That's the demotivator if you don't have it. Similarly, you know, respect for your supervisor. And this and this is what Mickey and I in our book, Managing the Unmanageable, call out as a critical foundational factor is respect for your supervisor. That's us. That's Mm -hmm. us managers. And if people don't have respect for their supervisor, well, there's a there's an HR rule of thumb that says people don't leave companies, they leave managers. And that's certainly been true in my career. And I know any number of other people who will say, who will say the same exact thing. Uh, on the other hand, and, some, and a few of us will join companies for a great manager as well. But it's, it's down the list for most of us after you know, making a difference in the world and the opportunity to, have, to work with a great team and some other things. So the motivators and demotivators are very different. Another demotivator that is just really obvious is uh, company policies and administration. I don't know anybody who's ever joined a company for its company policies and administration. (laughs) On the other hand, I know people who've left companies for policies and administration who are just frustrated and and don't want to be there. And so that's a foundational factor that you you need good policies and administration in place. As managers... You know, one, we need to engender respect. Two, we need to we need to protect our teams from stupid policies and administration and administrative kind of stuff. We need to be an umbrella to protect our teams from the torrent of politics around them. And if we're good at it, they won't even realize how much protection they have. They'll just be happy. So that's on the motivational side, and and it's sort of the cultural side is sort of the flip side of that. It's not just motivational, but it's, you know, what does it take to have a great culture? What does it take to to create the environment in which self-organizing teams thrive? What does it take to create the culture in which that, uh, well, uh, Google came up with the the two words, uh, psychological safety in their Aristotle study a few years ago, where they studied their high-performance teams and their low-performance teams and their high-performance teams all qualified as having psychological safety. Every single person on the team felt safe in making suggestions. And they did not 
feel afraid of saying something that other people would consider stupid. But some suggestions are, and and we need to create an environment in which there's psychological safety, and that starts with managers. Yep. You know, so much of what you've been talking about has to do with this psychological safety and the culture managers create. And a trend we're seeing is a lot more uh, remote and distributed teams recently. How has the role of a manager to accomplish these same goals about building that right culture uh, changed in the remote environment where people are not as face-to-face? Yeah, one of the great ironies of the 1990s were that there were two huge trends that happened during the 1990s. One of them being Agile, which said, let's get everybody you know, working face-to-face so that we work collaboratively as a team. And the other was distributed teams uh, of every different of every different style and type, including outsourcing, including totally distributed teams, including cells of a team being in, an, in two locations, just a whole gamut of, of possibilities. But distributed teams really came about in the 1990s at the same time as agile. And, and I don't have any I don't have any way to explain those two things. The thing that we have to do as managers is recognize core functionality, core process, core culture. Software development, my probably number one rule of thumb around software development is that software development is a team sport. It flourishes when we work as teams. It flourishes with psychological safety. It flourishes with respect and trust. It flourishes with teams having autonomy to make decisions about remaking their requirements based on getting feedback from customers and remaking their process based on the process working uh, better or worse in any as short of a day's period or uh, but typically in a in a sprint period or iterations period so we as managers with distributed teams really have to pay attention to being explicit about making communication and collaboration work and secondly, we have to be very explicit about bringing our teams together in the same locations from time to time, because there is no substitute for face-to-face. And so we've got to make that happen uh, at least some of the time. We'd love to kind of understand management theory at different stages of companies as well, because you might have like a startup that is just raised some seed capital or a little bit of venture money. So they're shipping to the clock, right? And maybe the way they approach uh, shipping software is a little different from a much larger company. I guess, how do you kind of handle the tension of, we got to get this out at like a smaller company and still kind of create a good atmosphere there? Yeah, I don't see them as terribly different. The large companies would like to, and some of them drive toward that same tension to shipping, yep. certainly Schwab had a value of relentlessly delivering value to customers. And it's not a lot different than what you see in a lot of startups around you know, being relentless about delivering the first functionality to customers. You know, I think the culture that we have to create as managers, it's fundamentally about, whether we're in large companies or small ones, it's fundamentally about delighting customers not just satisfying customers, but delighting customers. And if we focus on delighting customers 
and we stop focusing on schedule and we stop focusing on uh, budget and we stop focusing on all the rest of that stuff is extraneous to delighting customers. It's delighting customers that keep us in business. Yep. So this is something we've been asking a lot of our guests is kind of moving a, in a different tangential direction. What are some interesting technologies and trends that you're optimistic about? Because we always see, you know, kind of scary headlines about AI, ML is going to take jobs and this, this and the other. But I would love to get some kind of optimistic takes from your angle. I think that blockchain is one of the things that's really interesting to me, <laughs> not from a cryptocurrency standpoint you know, currency is its own astonishing meme yep. all by itself. I mean, you can go back 2,000 years and say, why does this coin or this piece of shell or this piece of gold or this piece of paper and now bits, why do we trust? <laughs> why do we try? Where, where does that trust come from that that actually represents value? So currency is interesting all by itself. But what's behind that cryptocurrency, the blockchain, of uh, the blockchain thing and the distributed nature of blockchain, I think is really, really interesting. And in a sense, it's an extension of what we first saw in peer-to-peer, which you know had an acronym and had an abbreviation P2P back in probably the 90s. But people were experimenting with, uh, I saw it experimented with at Apple before that, which is this notion of and BitTorrent uh, BitTorrent was sort of the video equivalent of it, you know, send, send pieces of a, of a video out and everybody shares it with everybody else. Yep. And everything's out there in a distributed kind of manner. And so I'm taken with those kinds of things and cryptocurrencies and blockchain have those elements to them. Uh, I think virtual reality has so much possibility and it's so little explored mm-hmm that I think we're going to see just massive amounts of it. I just don't know when or what. Google Glass was one of those places. I can't now name the the game that everybody was walking around playing and seeing things pop up on their phones just months ago. But another one of those examples, the possible, yeah, I, I think virtual reality is really interesting as well. Awesome. So what else are you 